Man, we talk about a lot of security. Mm-hmm. Happy not in an airplane day, Dave. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So you were you were traveling like a madman this week, huh? Yes. Yeah. I was uh, this week. I was a North Carolinian. Uh, did a whirlwind tour through uh, Raleigh. Mm-hmm. Saw the new headquarters, and then to Charleston, mm-hmm. and finally got home uh, last night, um, and spent the evening getting the house ready for uh, my sister, who's going to be in town this weekend. Nice. Yeah. So I get to see my sister and her and my nephew. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a going to be a nice little weekend. How about you? Good. No, it's just uh, didn't travel this week, so it was a good chance to get caught up on all the stuff that you can't do when you do travel. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's great. So we have a we kind of accidentally ran into a theme for the for today's episode, didn't we? Yes. Uh, yeah. See if people can uh, catch a pattern here. <laughs> That's right. So we got uh, Twitter security, Google Chrome security, Spiderweb security, Snapchat security, Open security, OpenShift security, and Calendar security. Interesting. I, I can't tell a pattern. Yeah, all the topics start with uh, T's, C's, S's, and O's. That's the pattern. Yep. yep. The vowels and consonants. <laughs> the vowels and consonants. That's right. All right. So if folks want to see uh, show notes, if they want to see links to the stuff we're about to talk about, uh, where do they go, Dave? Uh, they want to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. That's great. And uh, check us out on iTunes. Uh, make sure you uh, rate on us and, and give us thumbs ups and, and stuff on iTunes because that matters. Mm-hmm. It matters deeply to us. And, and in fact, my own sense of self-worth is really closely tied to how well we do on iTunes. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. could use some people's help there. Uh, so what's on the cutting room floor for for this week? Uh, so, uh, 3d printing of 19th century expired patent applications. So it's not the patent applications themselves, but people (laughs) have applied for patents and, um, those objects have been, uh, uh, been turned into, uh, things that you could print out on a 3d printer. Oh, cool. So like uh, steam powered backhoes and stuff like that. Exactly. Huh. Everybody needs one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why just, why just last weekend? I was, <laughs> found myself in need of a, a giant steam-powered backhoe made out of brass and and steel rings and, and stuff. Anyway, all right. Um, so, uh, Dave, have you tried the new Twitter security mechanism? Yes. Yes, I have. Um, and, you know, I saw... Um, so, basically, they, get, they got away from SMS. Mm-hmm. It wasn't totally trivial to set up. You know, it wasn't obvious uh, where uh, what I needed to do is go in and disable the SMS uh, part of it in, in, you know, in my account. And once I did that, then you can go in and then enable it on your device. Oh, you know what we should do? We should actually explain how the, how it's supposed to work before we talk about the, before we talk about the implementation details. So, so this is, you used to be able to use SMS to kind of prove that you were in possession of something that Twitter knew you should have possession of, right? There's yep. like a kind of a poor man's two-factor authentication. So when you log into Twitter, you can't just provide a password. You also have to, um, you'll then log in, you get an SMS from Twitter and read the text message and then type in the numbers into Twitter. And then it knows, not only do you know the password, but it knows that you're holding the cell phone that it thinks you should have. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. And, and then what it does, um, now is that uh, it, the way the way it works is that you don't have to use SMS, which I kind of like not using because it's not the most secure 
thing to do. Right. Um, the other part of it is that you could also, um, the way it works is it like on your device, you can like you like I would log into I would bring up a web browser on my desktop computer, go to Twitter, log in, and then what would happen is on my phone I would get an alert saying that hey this web browser is trying to access or are you going to authorize that? And then I click okay on my on my uh, cell phone and then it would authorize it. So it's kind of cool. You don't have to enter a code all the time, but mm-hmm. but you do have to be online in order to um, uh, you know have have it you know talk back to Twitter to authorize uh, that system. And then once mm-hmm. it's authorized, it's it's I guess it's authorized for a while or um, you know, always trusted, you know, that, that particular browser. So right. it's kind of cool. I, you know, I, I still kind of wish that it would use, you know, the way like Google and Microsoft and everybody else is sort of doing two factor authentication. And mm-hmm. if that is insufficient, with the, you're talking about the, to make it better. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about the TOTP or what is it? TOTP, uh-huh. HOTP, the, yep. yep, 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 yep. With the little num- random numbers that get generated on your phone and you type those numbers into the thing and then that's your, your second password. Exactly. Um, yeah. The um, well, the, they were talking about they wanted to make it easier um, for people to authenticate, but I mean, plenty of people use the Google two-factor, and mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of companies use use the random number generators for for two-factor. I have to wonder if that isn't like a if there's some kind of nefarious commercial reason why they would use their own authentication system. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That that. Now that I think about it, yeah, that, that there could be a reason for that. Like to be able to authorize other applications or, you know, sort of develop an identity, a way to manage identity. So, um, you know, like how Google wants to be your identity provider, maybe Twitter's trying to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Um, and then there was, there was, and then there was an Android update as well, right? Mm -hmm. Or a new, new Android mechanism. Yep. Yeah. So there's Android device manager. So Mm -hmm. this is actually pretty cool. So, I mean, they're tracking you anyhow, so you might as well get some benefit out of it. <laughs> so, um, among other people, yeah. um, and so what's what's pretty cool is that you could go to um, a particular Google web page, and then you could authorize your system to be tracked, and then um, or or at least, I guess, visible so you could track it, mm-hmm. um, and and so. I could see, like, if, oh, I lost my phone. Well, I can actually press a button and see where it is. Or if somebody stole my phone, I could actually track it down to where it is. And then I could also send a remote wipe uh, command out to the phone if it's, like, you know, completely out of my hands or whatever. So I thought that was pretty cool where, it, you know, it could, um, uh, you know, tell me where it is. And you can even have it, like, uh, set the ringer to, to just, like, go off. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like, if it's in your house, you know, like I know my wife will misplace, uh, um, you know, the, the home phone and then she would ring the home phone just to, you know, find the, the, you know, the cordless phone. And, and now that we got rid of our landline at cell phones, that's going to be harder for her when she just has her cell phone and doesn't have that to call it, to find the, the cell phone. Um, right. it's kind of cool where you, you just press a button in a web page and it'll, um, you know, make your make your phone ring. Which again, if, if it gets stolen, it could be a good way to um, have it go off and let you know, you know, you know who's walking away with your phone because all of a sudden the phone's going nuts. Right, right, right. Now, but on the other hand, Google gives with one hand, takes with the other, right? Because um, they have this, <laughs> they have this embarrassing, maybe embarrassing revelation about how Google Chrome stores passwords. Hmm. 
Yep. So this is this is different. Um, uh, so this is different from the device manager, mm-hmm. uh, where the, within Google Chrome, if you're using Google Chrome as a web browser, um, I guess there's no master password. Like if you're storing passwords inside of Chrome, mm-hmm. uh, because they believe that um, you know they don't want to set up a false sense of security, such that if you know uh, somebody gets is able to get your computer and get into your account, um, you know. Your your passwords are stored, I guess, in your home directory somewhere unencrypted. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go into Chrome and then bring up the password uh, dialog box and see all the passwords without a master password to lock it down. Um, and what was interesting was that the you know the security people at Google are like, well, it's we don't want we want to be totally upfront, and because if you encrypt it with a master password, then that gives people a false sense of security because if somebody gets a hold of your computer, they can actually get a hold of all the cookies and, and everything else and be able to reconstruct things. But uh, to me, it's like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it. Yeah, that's with, the, with that, that statement. Yeah, totally. That's the worst answer ever, right? I mean, that's like <laughs> I mean, defense in depth, right? I mean, it's kind of a, uh, it's a goofy catchphrase, but um, it's widely acknowledged that if you rely on another mechanism to secure your stuff, uh, you're going to be in trouble, right? So, you know, like being able to uh, put a password on stuff that is important, like, yes, you can encrypt your hard drive. Yes, you can put a password on your on your computer, but that's nowhere near sufficient, right? Um, mm-hmm. Saying that we're not going to do a master password because we don't want to trick people or that it's somehow like, it's somehow it's somehow less secure to give, put a master password on it. I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous. That's, that's a silly argument, right? Right. And, and to me, it's also a way to, for people to, um, you know, so like if, it, if there was a master password that could let, it, it sort of raises the bar. So at least you have to be a little bit more sophisticated of a criminal uh, yeah. or, a per, or a snoop. Uh, yeah. To be able to get a hold of something as opposed to just opening a text file that's unencrypted. Well, and it makes me wonder too about uh, hostile extensions to the to the browser, right? Like if I install a plugin or I install an add-on, do they now have access to the unencrypted passwords? I mean, mm-hmm. presumably they do, right? Well, that well that was part of the premise of of this guy's uh, talk is or uh, his reply saying that well, what if you have a hostile add-on um, mm-hmm. and it could get that? I don't know how the the Firefox. Uh, model works or or like if you're using something like um uh LastPass mm-hmm. like if if all of a sudden you have a, ma- a malicious extension can it slurp all the passwords out by talking to another one or are they firewalled off I I don't know and well and now I'm super confused because Google Chrome like one of the big selling points for it was that it was more secure because it runs every tab in its own sandbox right that was mm-hmm. like that's one, like one of the headline features of Chrome um and so if now they're saying that extensions don't protect against kind of cross sandbox, I, I, I'm confused. I'm very yeah, confused. But, but what if you have a, I would think extensions apply to all the tabs in a browser, like say like Adblock Plus or, or whatever, or the same thing with your LastPass. Like it would be mm-hmm. listening to every web page to see if you're typing something in or, or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I suddenly got a lot less confident in Google Chrome. Yeah, you know, and it's sort of like, well, you know, we do encrypt, uh, you know, we we hash the passwords for Etsy Shadow, um, you know, and uh, even though it's like not world readable and, you know, you got to log in as root and everything, but, uh, you know, even I could still log in as root on a Linux box without a password, you know, just by having physical access to the system or, you know, there are a lot of ways that I could get it, but it's like, 
it's one more thing that would slow me down yeah. uh, from getting in. And then the other part is that if you're storing passwords in, say, Chrome, you may be storing passwords for um, not super high sensitive things, right? Mm-hmm. So like like not not your banking website and all that, but maybe the password creation scheme that you're using could be extrapolated to figure out your password for your bank. Right. Right. If somebody was really determined. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. See, and the, and the trouble with this too is this, I mean, don't, I mean, I, I don't like the decisions that these guys make actually, and I don't like their replies either, which seem kind of dismissive, um, instead of actually addressing the real problem. I mean, the, um, you know, saying like, well, you know, people who want master passwords are just kidding themselves. Like this isn't, you know, that's not a serious security measure. Like, well, no, it is actually a serious security measure. Like it's, um, it's a, an idiom that is well understood and widely used. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and it seems like they're papering over, uh, kind of a pretty obvious vulnerability. I, it seems strange. Like how about instead of telling me that I'm dumb for wanting a master password, um, how about, how about you put some real protections in place to make sure that, you know, to get around some of these vulnerabilities, right? Right. Um, yeah. Well, he, well, their, their reply is, well, you should encrypt your hard disk. For, yeah, but, you know, yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't help the, that helps at one layer, right? That helps the, maybe helps at the physical access layer, uh, but mm-hmm. doesn't help the extension spying problem, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't help the layman that, you know, that, that it doesn't know what whole disk encryption is or, or they buy a laptop that isn't encrypted to begin with and mm-hmm. they start using it, you know, That's just right. the, the casual user. So they are you know, really at risk. Yeah. 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 That's a good, yeah. That's disappointing. Um, I wonder if a Google PR person had read that statement before it went out. Why not? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the scary thing about this is that there's no way to know when you have a vulnerability like this. Uh, the software itself is so complicated, uh, so much is hidden from an end user, and mm-hmm. especially with the advent of these cloud services you know, like Twitter. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we talk about Twitter and security and two-factor authentication and the rest of it is uh, because it's a lot harder to secure yourself when you ha- when you are not when all your software is not sitting on one box, right? There was a time when I could compile my own operating system, compile my own copy of GPG or whatever, encrypt some data and be pretty certain that it was going to be protected, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Now our applications don't just live on one machine. They are extremely connected. Um, Our, our, whatever, my friend uh, Jim Stogdall over at uh, O'Reilly, he, he talks about, he, (laughs) <laughs> he enjoys talking about these generative systems, right? And the idea is that when you have a lot of parts loosely coupled, they can be enormously powerful for uh, generating new work or, or innovative ideas, you know, uh, encouraging creativity. But also there's a downside to generative systems, right? Uh, loosely mm-hmm. coupled, well-connected systems like our laptops and the internet. And they are fundamentally less secure because there's no way we can predict how all those parts are going to fit together. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so where I have a laptop and a web browser now, suddenly instead of, it's not just a matter of me running a web browser securely, it's me connecting to between a number of routers, any number of, you know, SSL stacks to eventually get to a web provider who's doing God knows what on the back end. And now suddenly Mm -hmm. it's a, yes, it's a generative system. Um, but, uh, maybe not all for the good. Yeah, yeah, and even even if you did everything yourself, it's like you you there's 
you you can't prove that it's secure. You know, there there I think there has to be a level of trust where mm-hmm. you know even so you know so if it's proprietary code you can't see the code so you need to trust the vendor. If it's open source code you need to trust the person that's building the binaries whether it's built by the community or built by a vendor or even built by yourself. And if you build it yourself, you may trust yourself but do you trust yourself to audit every single line of code that you're building? Right. Um, which do, you tr- you're, do you trust the guy who wrote your compiler? Right. <laughs> well, that yeah, yeah, and it's and it and it keeps on going to the mm-hmm. point where um, you know, do you trust your hardware vendor um, because yeah. oh well, it was made overseas and it has you know certain firmware that from a certain country and you know who knows? Right. Um, and and you are so, not talking about Lenovo. Definitely not talking about Lenovo. I mean, you're right. It's like turtles all the way down. Um, yeah. And when you and you know, and you're right in that there's an implicit amount of trust that you have to have. At some point, you have to trust somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that we're sorely lacking is uh, is transparency, right? And uh, the ability to confirm some of the trust that we've placed in a lot of these vendors or in a lot of these products. Um, yep. It's just that the tools aren't there in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, and also, like, is it better to... Um, like when you you start thinking about with all the security things that have been going on in the news, is it better to use a service that is like humongous that has a lot of lawyers that can fight, you know, mm-hmm. requests by people to to get information, right. or is it better to go with some, somebody who's smaller that can fly under the radar, or is it better to do it yourself, or, um, you know, and and I. You know, what, what's your take on that as far as, like, do you trust mm-hmm. the 800-pound gorillas or, or, you know, because they have more lawyers or, you know, what do you do? Well, it depends on the kind of attack you're anticipating, right? Um, if yeah. you're anticipating being surveilled by the government or if that makes you super uncomfortable, then your life is a lot more difficult than if you're only worried about preventing your kids from <laughs> from getting out your hard drive, right? Um, right. Uh, maybe it's, you know, if you're worried about industrial espionage, you are going to do a different evaluation of trust, a different kind of trust evaluation than you are if you are worried about uh, the, uh, some foreign military getting at your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that, and I, and I think I understand the problem in those broad terms, but when it comes down to making kind of individual decisions about how I configure my stuff and what I connect to and who I create accounts for and all the rest of it, it's really easy to get uh, completely overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm granted, I'm, let's say, uh, let's say a power user, but, uh, when I, when I went to go build, when I went to go use a one password, right. Uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of a, a bookkeeper for, you know, all the passwords you have online and for accounts and applications and things like that. When I go and use one password, I was shocked to discover I had over 800 passwords. Wow. Just lying around. Um, no human can keep track of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and that means that I've trusted to one degree or another 800 different products, vendors, applications, websites. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like a, <laughs> it seems like a, it seems like a terrible compromise to have to make. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and then, uh, to quote Benjamin Franklin, uh, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> um, but, but I don't even know if that holds today because, you know, it's like, okay, well, two of them are dead. I'm still alive but I have it on my computer or I have it stored, you know, it, and, and mm-hmm. even then it's like, I, you know, it's, it's, but does that, does that, do you think that'll change behavior for people to lead squeaky clean lives and non-eventful things or 
I don't know. You mean you mean like in a panopticon kind of way? Yes, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, and that's the that's the danger, right? Is that if you feel fundamentally insecure when you are working with computer networks, you are going to behave differently um, than. Well, okay, so actually, one of two things is going to happen, right? Either you're going to um, start getting a lot more paranoid and you're going to start censoring yourself in, in one fashion or another, or the opposite happens. Let's call it the Facebook effect, um, where you suddenly say, well, everybody can see everything anyway, so what do I care? Yep. Right? Um, this is, this is uh, uh, I have family members who have this attitude towards their passwords, right? <laughs> They're going to choose the simplest possible password because they feel that no matter um, how diligent they are about their password choice, someone somewhere is eventually going to break it. So yes. why do I bother? Um, and I think that's as that kind of, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of 1984 versus brave new world, right? Yes. Um, it's like, like 1984 we're we're assuming there's some kind of omnipotent, omniscient authority who's going to come down and, and, and make life difficult for us. Uh, and then in brave new world, it's, well, we don't really care about anything. Like we're not really that interested in protecting anything anymore. Um, and they're both equally kind of toxic, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Soylent green. Yeah. Soylent green. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> My laptop is made of people. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, um, but what also, what about, is it, you know, the other thing I think about too, is it, it's like these things happen and the first reaction is we need more laws and that's, that's going to make security better. Right. And, and what about, in many ways, I think too, that it, it's better to have technology that actually confounds uh, existing law, like, like, you know, go back in history, like things like PGP, mm-hmm. um, of how that was like, oh my gosh, that's illegal. Or, or even the, uh, you know, we've talked about before the stigma around Tor, mm-hmm. um, you know, is that, uh, you know, it's, I don't, is legislation can, can that fix it or are things like do not track and, and, you know, it's like, oh, you're violating the law if you're tracking somebody or, or whatever, if legislation comes out, um, for that, um, or is it better to just, write software and come up with services that are secure by design, like say spider Oak that, you know, it's like they get a subpoena and they can't do anything about it because you know, the way they've written the code is it, it's like, you know, even if you lost your password or anything, you're out of luck because they don't have the ability to decrypt what you have. So they say, mm-hmm. oh, well, I mean, now we're in a, this, uh, well, we're, we're, we're about to conduct this experiment, right? Because we've got the EU who, um, almost overnight now is unable to trust any American cloud provider, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly not going to be moving any sensitive data um, over to the United States. Um, and so I think legislation is useful for this kind of thing in as much as it creates a liability for people. Um, mm-hmm. So if I'm a bank and I release somebody's data and I'm on the hook for millions of dollars, I'm now going to start making intelligent decisions or I'm going to be diligent about data protection in a way that I wasn't when there were no consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I, I think we'll start seeing, I'm anticipating more services like spider Oak, uh, more services like own cloud that give people the tools necessary to protect themselves. Um, for companies to protect themselves against liability of, you know, for data leakage or surveillance or all the rest of it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what pops up now. On the other hand, I mean, maybe that's just me being overly optimistic because this week, uh, in fact, just today we learned, 
um, about the two secure email services that shut themselves down uh, because they're subject to the Patriot Act. And they both of the vendors decided, and I think it was individual guys who were basically running it in their basement, as far as I could tell. Right. They were running these services and they were like, well, we're subject to the Patriot Act. And so no matter how secure an email system I can provide to my users, uh, it's fundamentally insecure because a Fed can walk in the door with a, a sealed subpoena uh, for all the data on my hard drives. So I'm just going to shut the service down uh, so people don't you know, mistakenly think that I'm offering them a truly secure service. Yeah. Well, are, were those email services designed to make it such that the owners of that service can't read their customer's email? Yeah, it was. I was actually a little bit confused because in, uh, if I was reading it correctly, I don't use either service. Uh, and in fact, at the moment, I can't remember their names, but we'll, we'll include links to the, to the items in the show notes. The, the both services, I think, were designed with end-to-end encryption. In other words, the encryption was done on your own computer, and then the uh, server would just pass encrypted information around. So presumably if the vendor got a subpoena or somebody hacked into the vendor, um, all they would be able to get at is encrypted data. So I, I wonder if the, I wonder if the vulnerability, the actual vulnerability there is the assumption that if a sufficiently large and sophisticated agency could subpoena the encrypted data that they would eventually be able to unencrypt it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the vulnerability is around the metadata, right? Because email fundamentally is uh, vulnerable to metadata type attacks or metadata analysis uh, because there's no way to encrypt the, the envelope, the two from subject date uh, data. Um, and so these vendors may be thinking, maybe worried less about the content of the email than about the fact that somebody could subpoena the two from subject lines of every email that passes through the system. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's interesting. That sort of takes it full circle where <laughs> right. these guys shut down Whereas Google threw their hands up and said, hey, it's not secure anyhow, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Again, 1984 versus Brave New World, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm depressed, Dave. And suddenly want to read Brave New World again. Yes. Yeah. Huxley. Um, hmm. Speaking of Brave New World, let's tell us about uh, Mill OSS. Oh yeah. So I just, yeah. So well, the <laughs> nice segue, um, I was in, uh, <laughs> I was in Charleston for, um, the military open source working group, uh, the Charleston chapter, uh, or the Lant chapter as they call themselves. Um, they were having their, uh, I guess annual meeting. Um, and so Charleston is great military city, uh, lots of DOD activity. There are a lot of military developers down there. Uh, and so I got to spend a day or two with, uh, some old friends, some new friends, uh, heard about the focus of this conference was on security. If you go to their website, you will find they don't use the word secu- security. They instead use a word that starts with C Y and ends in R security. Mm. Um, wow. but I'm not going to say that word here. Um, and in fact, that probably accounts for the fact that I was mildly nauseous the whole time I was in that conference room, uh, <laughs> surrounded by, surrounded by that word. Um, so it's sort of like, like the knights who say me, <laughs> that's right. Sort of thing that's to right. You, and it was, yeah. you were just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that was me rolling around in the, rolling around in the back of the room, clutching my head. Um, but no, uh, a great bunch of guys, um, doing a lot of really interesting work on, uh, this <laughs> complex issue of security that we just uh, we just did a nice tour of, um, talking about how to use uh, big data and security. Uh, there was an SE Linux training class. Uh, it was a really it was a nice event. 
Um, and of course, good to see some of our, uh, some of our old friends, uh, down in Charleston. Uh, so that was great. Now, one, one big kind of news item that came out of it is, uh, our friend Josh Davis, uh, who was uh, basically the founder and the, the granddad of Mill OSS. Um, he works for Georgia tech and he's really the one that kind of galvanized the, the national Mill OSS community. And he runs the mailing list and things like that. Um, Josh announced, uh, a new project of his, um, Mm. And so based on Mill OSS, it's uh, called uh, open security. Um, mm, okay. Thank God. Thank God he didn't use that C word. Uh, yeah. So this is, uh, this is basically like Mill OSS, uh, but focused specifically on security issues. Uh, huh. And so I think this is kind of informed by Josh works for the Department of Homeland Security uh, for the host program. Yes. Um, and so this, I think, is kind of an offshoot of that. Um, so the idea is... Open source is being used everywhere in the security field for all the reasons that you and I talk about almost every week. Um, and yet there is no one place where folks who live at the intersection of security and open source uh, can, from a policy point of view and from a government point of view, where they can hang out. Uh, and so mm-hmm. uh, it, just like MillOSS, uh, the hope is that this uh, open security uh, organization is going uh, to fill that gap. Uh, so mm-hmm. they're at... Uh, they're at open dash sec. Uh, we'll include a link to the, uh, to the website in the show notes, uh, but everyone should uh, go check it out. Well, speaking of the intersection of open source and security, that, mm-hmm. that sounds like, like the SCAP security guide is would that's like the perfect fit for yeah. that sort of topic. Yeah. yeah and, in, and in fact, uh, Sean Wells, who now owes me $20 is, uh, <laughs> was actually at the, uh, was actually at the Mill OSS conference, uh, talking about how the SCAP security guide project, um, is, uh, interacts with, uh, the DISA STIG hardening guide. Um, mm-hmm. so he was up there on a panel. He did a great job. Nice work, Sean. Nice. Yep. Yep. So, uh, actually Dave, we gotta, we gotta, we're, we're going to be doing some panels of our own in not too long, right? Yep. Yeah, we got the uh, uh, um, the Red Hat Government Symposium coming mm-hmm. up. Yep. Uh, and so registration is open for that. Uh, yep. So if you are in D.C. Uh, in, when is it, Dave? November? Early November? Yeah, November 2nd, I think. November 2nd. Uh, in the show notes, go to ggshow.org, uh, click on the link, and go uh, go register. Uh, go check mm-hmm. it out. You get to uh, spend some quality time with me and Dave. Exactly. We'll, we'll sign podcasts. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. And hopefully by then, uh, I will have gotten a ratification of Helixson's law. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that's a, um, yeah. Tell us about what, what, what happened there. So, um, in case you missed that episode, uh, it was 19 episode 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, I think you actually coined the term. Uh, so we were talking about open source policies in governments and organizations. And, uh, I had written, uh, I had written a piece a while back about how, there shouldn't really be an open source software policy uh, and that any rules that you want to impose on open source should apply equally to open source and proprietary software. And to illustrate the point, I took uh, an IRS policy document on open source software and went through it and crossed out the word open source whenever it appeared in the policy. And Mm -hmm. what resulted was a perfectly sensible software policy. Mm -hmm. Um, So this principle that, um, anything, if it's good enough for open source, it's good enough for proprietary, uh, mm-hmm. 
the we've <laughs> I guess we've coined it Helixon's Law, and uh, I think we were chiding uh, Matt Mycini from uh, from our partner at DLT. Uh, we chided Matt to go create a, a Helixon's Law Wikipedia page, um, and sure enough, he did it. Uh, so we're I think we're 754 in the queue right now, uh, but there is a uh, there is a proposal in Wikipedia for the creation of a Helixon's Law page. Um, so. Uh, you know, I don't know what the criteria is for actually approving this stuff, um, but I, I suspect what I need is a whole bunch of uh, canonical uh, kind of off-internet uh, uh, references to Helixon's Law uh, to, mm-hmm. kind of su- to kind of support the fact that this is a real thing and not just something that you, me, and Matt Mycini made up. Right. Um, so I was thinking about securing the uh, services of reputation.com. Yes, exactly. That's that's the first thing I would do. <laughs> right. So I can go pay somebody to go gin up a bunch of uh, kind of fake news items, fake newsletters, all mentioning Helixon's Law uh, and referring back to my webpage. Um, I figure uh, whatever the cost is, it's definitely worth getting, uh, getting my, finally getting my own Wikipedia page. That would be nice. Yeah, and your own law. You could like make coffee mugs and all that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, that that could be another thing is you could get go to Cafe Press and make some Helixon Law coffee mugs and then link to that in the Wikipedia article. Yes, I will. Okay, I swear here before you, Dave, and before all of our listeners that if Helixon's Law becomes an official Wikipedia page, I will print Helixon's Law tank tops. Yep. And we'll, and we'll get a picture of you wearing one. I. Uh, okay. Yes. Agreed. Okay. Yes. All right. Very good. <sighs> Somebody write that down. Because I'm definitely not writing that down. Uh, <laughs> well, Matt it, went to the trouble of... of uh, it's true. Of, uh, putting, and it is a beautiful article he put together. It's very... I mean, it, it's very academic, very... You know, he's using like $10 words in that thing. So it was, it was <laughs> and, and, really what better, nice. and what better way to reward him than send him a photo of me in a tank top? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He'll never do it again. <laughs> he must have been... I guess he maybe he drove down to... Uh, Charleston from DC, and he must have been uh, binging on uh, catching up on the episodes I on D and G shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God, okay. Quickly pivoting the subject over to Dave. Uh, you found so one of I know Dave. You and I love this particular uh, uh, component of RHEL and this particular open source project. This is IPA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so. We don't talk about it too much, and in fact, Red Hat doesn't talk about it too much in general, but it's uh, an incredibly useful piece of RHEL um, that n- a lot more people should be using it uh, for all the reasons that we've talked about earlier. Um, and it just uh, it just did kind of a Wonder, Pin, Wonder Twin Powers Activate uh, kind of partnered up with uh, OpenShift, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, well, it's a, it's a proof of concept uh, page that's hanging off the free IPA website. And so... Free IPA uh, is the open source project. Uh, Red Hat Identity Management is the commercialized version that lives for free inside of RHEL, inside of your RHEL subscription. And what um, IDM or IPA is, is you could think of it as an alternative. Uh, Linux's answer to Active Directory, where you're essentially gluing an LDAP server to uh, um, uh, to a Kerberos server, and it, it's all nice and integrated, web front end and all that. Um, and since it's uh, Kerberos, you could actually have uh, orga- uh, trust with Active Directory. So, um, so you could have a single sign-on. So I could sign on, I could be on my Linux box, uh, authenticate, get a Kerberos ticket off of an IDM server that's running on another RHEL box, 
um, and and then be able to single sign on to say like Windows Server without a password, um, and you know to be able to look at like web pages or uh, Samba shares or things like that. So this article actually goes into showing how they use uh, uh, identity management uh, to do single sign-on for OpenShift Enterprise, which is the on-premise version of of our uh, PaaS offering called OpenShift. Cool. Well, that's great. So how would I? So how how would? So how would I use that? Well, um, one of the things would be like I, I you know the thing that I always you know. We, it drives me crazy. I'm sure it drives other people, like people that use this uh, software in production crazy. Is that every time you come up with, you know, somebody wants to use a particular piece of software, um, a lot of times you, the identity store lives inside of that product. So now you have an account for, um, you know, your virtualization software and, and username and password and it's stored in possibly a database, possibly unhashed. And that's probably not very secure, you know, cause people are, um, you know, people spend money on say like the virtualization solution. Um, and just the identity part of it is more of an afterthought. So it may not be as secure. Um, so by having this centrally managed, you can have, um, you know, a single identity, um, namely that of your, your Kerberos login. Uh, to be able to sign on once. So instead of having a separate identity store inside of OpenShift Enterprise, you could point to identity management and use your existing identity management infrastructure or have an organizational trust, uh, a, a Kerberos cross-realm trust with, say, Active Directory. So I can have... Um, I can I can be authenticated with Active Directory and then go to log into OpenShift Enterprise and OpenShift Enterprise will talk to identity management uh, to make sure that... I'm okay by talking to Active Directory. So it's just like how you said that, you know, in your uh, OnePass account, you have 800 different passwords. Well, this this will get you down to 799. <laughs> well, right. That was just going to say, like, so, so for the end user, it means not having to remember another password. Uh, uh-huh. It means that if I change my password once, it, it takes effect everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, will reduce the number of times I have to provide that password. Yes, and if you win the lottery and you don't do OpenShift things anymore, they can just you know disable your account in one place, and you know it's that's mm-hmm. one less thing that somebody has to worry about. Uh, you know, some stale account that somebody has a, a login credential it's active for. No, oh, that's great. That's great. How cool. Uh, do you know who wrote that? No, no, okay. offhand. But I I do know that. Well, I can't talk about it right now. But um. Good things are coming. Oh, speaking of which, the summit is coming next year. So I'll just I'll leave it at that. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Put a put a pin in that for a second. Yeah. Ah, excellent. Um, so I have an admission to make, Dave. It's a little bit embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I have an iPhone. Yeah, it's wow. It's yeah. Sacrilege. It's yeah. aw- awkward. Um, but the thing about this iPhone, it's. It, I've actually learned a lot by moving. I've been an Android user for years and moving onto this iPhone has actually changed the way it uh, changed the way I'm thinking about this Android versus iPhone thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let me, let me, I'm going to riff on this for, for just a little bit. Um, what I found is that moving from Android to iPhone, um, it just as a little experiment. I'm, I'm about two weeks into it has made me realize that I may be thinking about the vendor lock-in thing wrong. Here's what I mean. Yeah, so here's what I mean. Um, We talk about openness as if it were a 
openness, let me put it this way. Openness is a, is a verb and not a noun. Okay. What I mean by that is we talk about, especially in the circles you and I run in Dave, right? Um, if you're not running Linux on your laptop, people kind of, you know, arch an eyebrow, right? They kind of, mm, that's a little bit suspicious. Um, <laughs> if you're using any proprietary software, they're, they're, they get kind of suspicious and, and don't really trust it. Likewise with iPhones, right? Uh, iPhones are notoriously locked down, kind of the, the classic, um, <laughs> Apple is, uh, if nothing else, they are famous for being, you know, kind of the lock-in Kings. Right. Yes. Um, and so, uh, that, which is, which is fine. And I was, I, I think I was laboring under that same set of, set of assumptions, you know, so I got and get an Android phone and I learned, uh, I, I learned how to use it and I, and I started enjoying it and I do that for a few years. Um, but, but now switching to this iPhone in this experiment has made me realize that, um, openness, you don't get any points just for running open source software, right? You don't mm -hmm. get any points for running things that comply with open standards. What you do get points for and where you actually get the benefit of it is when you cash it in, when you're able to move easily from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, so in other words, if you have this benefit, but you never exercise it, then what's the point of, you know, bending over backwards to make sure you're using all this open stuff, right? Right. Um, and so what I learned is in moving from, from Android to iPhone, uh, there are a few things that are, that are annoying to me. There are a few things that I wish were different. Um, things like if Apple produces an application, it doesn't permit, uh, a replacement or alternative application to take over that function on the iPhone. Uh, the best example is maps. So Apple has its own maps app. Um, mm -hmm. which famously had this kind of stumbling start. It didn't work that great at first. Um, because they publish a, a, a maps application, all the mapping functions inside the iPhone, like when I go and click on an address in the, in the contact list, I click on the address, it will open up the Apple maps application. And even though I have Google maps installed, I'm not allowed to go use it. Um, if I want to use Google maps, I got to copy the address, move to the Google maps app and then paste it. And then I get to use it. Wow. So that's super annoying for somebody coming from Android, right? Where, yeah. where Android, you click on an address and it gives you a list of everything that can eat an address, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a mime type pretty yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, the, so, uh, and the system is called intense, uh, on Android. So when an app is installed, it, it tells Android what it is, what it can eat. Uh, and then whenever one of those things, one of that, one of those data types pop up, uh, you get a list of all the, all the applications that can, that can eat that data. Um, mm -hmm. really nice and really great for moving data bit from one app to another. Mm -hmm. Um, not the case in iPhone land, uh, in iPhone land, all the connections between applications have to be written into the application itself, mm. which is super goofy, a great opportunity for, and in fact, I've, I've seen some cell, I've seen some apps that, uh, want me to pay more for the privilege of sharing with another, with another application. So for instance, if I want to take something and go send it to Evernote, mm -hmm. well, I got to pay five more bucks so that I can unlock that feature of the application. Wow. Yeah. Um, broken, like super broken. Uh, that, and that's, that's really annoying. Um, but now, uh, that though was, uh, just annoying for just a few days because when I, after I used it for about a week, um, was it as convenient as Android? No. Uh, but was it a total showstopper? No, it absolutely wasn't. Like I just learned to copy and then paste into, you know, from one app to, to another. Um, mm -hmm. but by and large, my experience was 
really easy. Um, what worked on Android worked on iPhone, um, and I really didn't see a huge difference over time between the two. Um, and so, I mean, really, what we're talking about is kind of a narcissism of small differences, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, this idea that uh, somehow using an iPhone makes me a kind of a person, or or, or announces uh, something about my character, um, or using an Android is going to advertise uh, my enthusiasm for openness and and standards and and all the rest of it uh but in truth when you start using these things they are functionally pretty similar i would say you know 90 95 basically the same stuff hmm. that's interesting so it I mean, really really got me thinking about how you know you i uh, know i say this all the time i suspect you uh, you say the same thing you know when we talk about openness to enterprise software customers and we talk about the danger of lock-in and all the rest of it um maybe this is just me, you know, maybe this is me realizing that I've been drinking Kool-Aid for seven years, but I think I've been thinking about it wrong. I've, we've been taking kind of a, a, a not very nuanced view of this lock-in problem um, mm-hmm. in that there's nothing actually wrong with running proprietary software. Um, and it's not even a matter of simply tolerating its existence. Um, when we're running proprietary software or when we're running open source software, the benefits of running one versus another never really count until you need to move from say one to another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the, it's in the act of taking advantage of the attributes, uh, where you get the return. Um, you don't just sit there and accumulate, you know, you don't get, like I said, you don't get points, you don't get gold stars just for having an all open source stack. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, well, Ed, I've been rambling there for a while. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to think about this. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I don't think that, iPhone is a completely proprietary thing and Android is a completely open thing either because, you know, iPhone is based on uh, BSD and Mm -hmm. then ultimately you'll get, you'll find source code, Um, not everything. And it's the same thing with with Google as well. You're not going to get the source code to the YouTube app or the Gmail app or the App Store app or, um, you know, any of the third party apps either. So, you know, I think you're going to deal with, there's some level of proprietariness all, all over the place. And especially with phones, um, even if you have access to the code, is it easy for you to modify things? Probably right. not. Right. Right. And, right. you know, what, even with Android, um, and I, I think it's more of a, it's less of an open source thing with Android in terms of how the design was, where with, like how you said with Apple, it's like, well, if you want to use a URL, well, you got to use the you know Safari or whatever. And if mm-hmm. you want to use Firefox or some other browser, it's just painful. Mm-hmm. And whereas with Android, you you have that choice. But in many ways, I wonder if by having that choice, that forces the app developers for you know the the, the Google apps or or whoever um, to actually work harder and do a better job because that that's you know because other people you know people are choosing other things. Yeah. 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 I agree. It's really interesting. Really interesting. Um, so, so as part of this, as part of this change up, uh, I'm also thinking about remember the milk, mm-hmm. which, you know, is the task manager I've been using for years and, and I've, and I, I love it very much. Um, it's been, uh, kind of, you know, on my browser, it's always the first tab that's pinned over on the left hand side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been like that, like I say, for, for years, Although recently I've been hearing some unpleasant stuff about some of the remember the milk really isn't adding any features. I mean, development is obviously slowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they started to screw the third party application developers, uh, in the same way that Twitter has. Um, so, 
uh, as an example, like getting a native remember the milk application, it, you can only do it if like, you're not going to make any money on it. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of souring on it. And also I'm finding that it's... <laughs> souring the milk? Yeah. Oh, I see what I did there. Oh, that's really good. Thanks for picking on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I've been looking at different ways of managing tasks. And uh, for almost every other kind of information, I spend most of my time in text files um, mm-hmm. because I'm a long-time VI nerd. And so I was looking for ways of managing tasks just using plain text files, right? Um, and since mm-hmm. uh, I'm not an Emacs nut and using org mode um, and uh, uh, don't really enjoy masochism uh, in the same way as those guys do, I was looking at a thing called task paper, um, mm-hmm. which is really similar to Markdown. And it is a way of, it, through a text file, um, basically accounting for things that you need to do and assigning them due dates and tagging tasks. Um, you can divide them into projects. Um, the format is easy enough to remember uh, that you don't really have to, you don't spend any time learning it. You just start using it. And one big difference that I've enjoyed with this task paper uh, stuff is that uh, you get a, um, it's much easier to put yourself in context to, to get a, a view of all the tasks before you, right? Mm-hmm. So in Remember the Milk, I have a series of projects and I got to click on a project and see what the tasks are. I click on a project and see what the tasks are. Click on a project and see what the tasks are. With task paper, it's all in one uh, text file. And so I can just look at the series of kind of bulleted lists that I've made and get a sense for kind of how much work I have, you know, what, you know, what has more tasks than, than another. Uh, it's easy to move tasks from one project to another. Um, it just seems to jibe a lot more with how I, how I naturally do stuff. And I think this is in large part because when I'm taking notes in meetings, um, it's, I'm just doing bulleted lists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so task paper becomes very similar. In fact, what's really cool is that I can take notes in meetings with markdown, like I always do. And I can use the task paper notation to say that this particular bullet is going to be a task for me later. Hmm. And then my task paper application and there are many of them, but my test paper application can then slurp up my inbox, my projects, my meeting notes, and give me a list of all of the tasks that I've described. Mm-hmm. Pretty clever. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so uh, I've only just started playing with this, um, but I'm really, 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 really hopeful for it. And one thing I like very much about it is that it is useful even without an application mm-hmm. because it's just a text file, Right. Right. And I can use WebDAV or Dropbox or, or what have you to, uh, to actually manage it. The one bummer, though, is collaboration. There's no obvious way of taking, a te- say, a grocery list and sharing it with my wife. Yes. Uh, that would be, be kind of handy. But now you found a tool that will do something like that, right? Yeah, actually. And, and so it's still, it has its issues, too. But um, So there's a thing called Hackpad that, I've, that I saw. And for those of us... Uh, like at Red Hat, we use Etherpad internally. Um, so Etherpad We're is using a it right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a collaborative text editing tool. Um, it was uh, they, open source. Is uh, the the people that made it um, got bought by Google, um, and uh, that's where a lot of I think a lot of the the Google Docs collaborative editing features have have showed up uh, mm-hmm. due to their engineering work. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hackpad it looks like a proprietary version of Etherpad with a couple extra things like um, inst- like for um, Etherpad you could do like bulleted lists, but it, uh, at least with the version we're using, it doesn't allow you to do like numbered lists or checklists or things like that, or, you know, tables or spreadsheet cells. There's Ethercalc, 
which is kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be mm-hmm. great when we get that going. Mm-hmm. But with um, but Hackpad adds things like being able to do checklists, um, and there's also collaborative aspects to it. Um, but so there's good news, bad news things with it is that it's not open source. Um, so if somebody wanted to make their own copy or whatever, you can't you can't do it. But one of the neat things about it is it it uh, integrates with Dropbox. And so, like, I could write this document, like, I could take all the notes in Hackpad and then have it automatically saved to Dropbox so that if I'm on an airplane or wherever I'm at, I could, you know, I could just bring up a shell and grep um, and look for things if I wanted to without having to be online. Cool. But the, so it's like, all right, I'll try this thing out. And, and then it brought up this permission dialogue uh, for me to connect hackpad to dropbox and and just like you know you authorize uh an app to use twitter or you know a google service or whatever it tells me like oh hey this is what it's trying to do and it said that oh hack hackpad would like to access uh read and write all of your files in dropbox <laughs> and i'm like hey now <laughs> yeah yeah and i wish it, you know it's like if there was a certain like a folder you mm-hmm. know that would be cool yeah. um but not all of them. I don't think that's necessary. Well, it's um, funny. So, so it's, that well, yeah. the, that's part of the. I know the Dropbox permissions, like the API. The, those are basically the choices, right? You can an application can have control over its own directory, which is in like slash apps slash whatever, um, mm-hmm. or you can give it access to everything. It's like, but I wait a minute. And so, um, I know I have this problem with a uh, what is it? Oh, uh, using. Uh, NV Alt, as an example, which is a text editor um, that automatically syncs with Dropbox. Um, mm. If you want to use NV Alt, uh, you know, if you want to use the, uh, if you want to use a, actually, no, that's not true on NV Alt, because NV Alt just does the text message. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that um, some applications want to access text files, for example, that you already have, right? So say if you have like a notes directory on your Dropbox, you want to give the app access to that notes directory. In order to give it access to that notes directory, you have to give it access to everything in Dropbox, mm-hmm. um, so, which is a terrible idea. Um, but it's a limitation of Dropbox, which is just a bummer. Really yeah, what, what we really need is a open source... Or, or not even open source, an open standard for doing collaboration. But I don't think like Dropbox is specifically is motivated to do that. They'd rather have their own sort of thing, sort of like Twitter, where that's what everybody uses, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to having a standard that, oh, well, I could do, you know, it's like, well, I, I could have this folder and I could attach it to own cloud or Dropbox or my app permissions or shared whatever. Um, but I don't. I think that's an opportunity waiting to happen there. And it happened. Um, really? Oh, yes. So a uh, uh, friend of the show, Adam Clater, uh, actually wrote a really nice article about why this was important. Um, and it has to do with why uh, Dropbox, as part of their business model, is now trying to not just take people's data, but also like application configurations. Um, mm-hmm. So if I'm using my word processor or whatever the settings for that word processor would get stored in Dropbox, which sounds mm-hmm. super handy and it is super handy, but it also means that now suddenly my application is tied to Dropbox in a super tight way. Um, yes. And so uh, Adam was saying like, oh God, I wish there was a way to do uh, dev or web dev, which is the standard that you were asking for just now is we have one. It's called web dev. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And if it gets distributed authoring and versioning, I think is what it is. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, web dev has been around forever. Um, and in fact, uh, most operating systems support it natively. I know Nautilus does on, on Linux. Um, the finder does on OS 10 and I think windows supports web dev as well. 
uh, so you can uh, connect to a, a file store uh, on a server somewhere through WebDAV, and it just shows up as a folder on your system. And as you're manipulating it, it ends up manipulating it on the server. So similar to Dropbox, um, in a bunch of ways, uh, and a lot of applications support it. The trouble is you can't use WebDAV against Dropbox, but uh, the f- good folks at dropdav.com, which I guess is mm-hmm. a commercial service, I think it's proprietary, right? It's the, they're not open. Um, but in any case, they uh, they offer a kind of WebDAV front end for Dropbox so that any app mm-hmm. that knows how to use WebDAV uh, can actually use Dropbox as its backend store. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, though, I, I my experience with... Uh, Dav has mm-hmm. been similar to Evolution, mm-hmm. where it's like it's <laughs> Char- like, like, awesome. Char- like Charlie Brown in the football. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like this time it's going to be awesome, <laughs> and and it's like I try it and it's it just ends up being disappointing. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, and maybe that's maybe because I'm using an old version of GNOME, um, but it's almost like like an FTP sort of like big blobs and moving yes. around and and it's like if I go to edit a file it like sucks down the whole file and then pushes a the whole thing back up as yep. opposed to almost like a dropbox where it's like I save it and then over time it'll it'll trickle the changes out which is mm-hmm. great. Yes, yeah, that's right. Well, and also webdev doesn't have any really good offline mechanism um, mm-hmm. so that I can't like Dropbox, so one of the great things about Dropbox is that it, you know the files are on my computer, so that if I'm in an airplane, I still have access to them, and it'll just sort out the conflicts later when it's at resyncs. Um, yes. In WebDAV, you have to actually be connected all the time, which is uh, tedious. Um, you know, but one thing I was doing was for a while uh, back when I had patience and time was uh, <laughs> was using Git for this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, Git's a version control system, right? It knows how to merge changes. It knows how to handle, you know, distributed file stores. Um, and so, basically, like, took my whole home directory and checked it into Git just to see how it would work. Uh, mm-hmm. Turns out, terrible. Turns out, it's a terrible idea. It's not a very good idea at all. It's um, really annoying to uh, keep stuff updated, um, keep the repos committed and synced. It just it was mm-hmm. a disaster. Um, but no, Dave, you you were you've, you've just started experimenting with Git, right? Yeah, I've been playing around with it. Um, seems like that's the thing all the uh, cool kids are doing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and and that's basically the the way that you talk to OpenShift, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to be able to get stuff in there. So, for you know, even like if you have customers that are using ClearCase or Subversion or whatever, that's cool. You know, they can do all that, but they're but you would use like a plugin to basically um, slurp the code out of ClearCase and then pump that into OpenShift to deploy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I've been playing playing with it, going through uh, some of the tutorials, and um, so far so good. And and for me, it's like I haven't like the last time I did version control and any sort of heavy duty software development was a long long time ago when I was doing RCS, which was before Git, which yeah, was before grand- Subversion, <laughs> which was before CVS, the granddaddy, and, yeah. Yeah, and and so that that wasn't even. I mean, it wasn't even necessarily network based. You know, right? Mm-hmm. You it was basically, if anything, it was like maybe to an NFS mount somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was all highly file based and didn't work. Well, I guess it worked okay for you know teams and all that. But uh, for me, that's it looks like with Git, it with sub, and Subversion and anything like that. I, I think that for me, there's this psychological barrier of it. It's like it's humongous and very complicated. And mm-hmm. it's like, what I really need is like the 10 commands that I'm going to use 90% of the time. Yep. Um, and it's like, Oh, 
here are the four steps to check out something here. Here are the steps to check something in and sort of once you know that, mm-hmm. um, that's good. But, but I still worry about, um, doing something embarrassing. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. and, and, you know, because literally it's forever or, you know, committed as, you know, you're a fool. Um, and you know, Linus yells at you or something, but, um, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, it's, and 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 also getting my head wrapped around a lot of the concepts too because they're somewhat new from back when I did RCS mm-hmm. right like the concept of pulling and pushing right yes yeah yes. Um, so yeah w- the one thing that is nice and like you said complicated and terrifying about Git is that at any given you can go to what your repo looked like at any moment in time mm-hmm. and there is a cryptographic hash that matches up that moment in time. So you can say, go get me my copy of my website as it looked on, you know, July 3rd at 3.43 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then there is basically a number associated with that. And you can go fetch that number and go take a look at what the repo looked like. And what's super confusing is that you can actually pull out multiple versions of the same repository, flip between them at will, edit them at will, and then merge them all back together. Yes. Um, and so, you know, great power, great responsibility. Um, and it is. great, great number of things that can go wrong. <laughs> and that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. It's a, no, Git is a really, I mean, incredibly powerful tool. I mean, and, but also because, first of all, because it's so powerful, um, it, it's also become extremely popular and it didn't, it was okay popular. I mean, in part because Linux moved to using the Git system, I guess. But the uh, the folks at GitHub uh, are really what made Git take off. Um, oh yeah, because they threw a unbelievably easy to use UI on top of this extremely powerful, extremely complicated, uh, and extremely robust version control system. Um, and I know for me, when I was learning Git, I found it easiest to start using just the UI on GitHub, just yep. to acquaint myself with the with the concepts. Yes. Um, and then that kind of, once I learned the vocabulary and kind of the workflow, uh, that kind of emboldened me to go back to the command line and start using it, um, you yeah. know, like, like a grown up. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And the funny thing too, is that, uh, all the preparation for, um, uh, getting my daughter ready for the, the scratch, um, mm-hmm. presentation that she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed her GitHub. Mm-hmm. And and it's like you know and and I compared the Scratch website of where you know you could follow people, um, you could fork their code and create your own stuff, mm-hmm. and you know you can comment on people's codes and send messages back and forth, and a lot of that is in GitHub. Yeah. Um. And you know we even talked about that while she was doing the presentation. Um. You know, and I I asked uh, people in the audiences like, does this Scratch website look a lot like GitHub to people? And and a lot of people were raising their hands. So I yeah. I think it's really you know I I could imagine Scratch being like a gateway drug to uh, GitHub actually. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Well, I mean, I think increasingly, I mean, GitHub is so wildly popular. I think just programming is a gateway drug to GitHub. Um, it's you know, it's it's hard to find an open source project now that isn't either using GitHub itself or connected to something that's on GitHub. Um, it's a it's an incredible ecosystem and run by a bunch of really nice guys, by the way. Yeah. Um, they've you know they do regular uh, GitHub drink ups in cities around the country <laughs> to you know to kind of get developers on on board and um, yeah they're just uh, really really cool product and a, and a really great company. They're doing they're doing a great job. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, and the reason and we should tell folks that the reason why we were uh, looking at Git 
um, is uh, is that we were talking about using moving dgshow.org to GitHub, um, mm-hmm. or at least using Git to, to kind of manage it because uh, the you know WordPress is getting a little unwieldy. Um, but I'm finding like I just can't I, I can't find the time to sit down and actually do the migration of the show to actually get it moved over. Um, and we keep doing more episodes. And we keep doing more episodes, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got a red queen problem. Um, I'm kind of yeah. running as fast as I can just to kind of stay in place. Um, and so, and Dave, you know, in our in our offline calls, we've been uh, we've been spending a lot of time talking about how we're managing our time, um, and we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we say no. Um, yeah, which I, is, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have time. I don't have time. It's not a priority for me. <laughs> um, but specifically, you know, so that, so, you know, you and I will talk to each other about, well, no, we're going to set a priority. And we're going to say, this is important and this isn't important. And so, um, you know, when somebody asks me to do something that I don't think is a priority, I'm just going to say no. Like, I'm just going to say no. Um, and Dave, you're a big advocate of, uh, instead of saying no, you're a big advocate of the qualified yes, right? Yes. Um, so yeah. when, why don't you tell folks about what the qualified yes means? Yeah, so somebody will be like, oh, I need you to be in this meeting, and they may not specify whether it's in person or um, in or via phone, and I'll say, yes, I can do that. What's the dial-in number for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of setting the expectation of, of um, saying, no, I'm not going to travel out there, or no, I have a conflict, or I have other things that I have to do, because mm-hmm. even though it's just an hour-long meeting, there there may be like, eight hours of travel and a thousand dollars worth of travel expenses associated with that. Plus the, the opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, you say, um, you know, you, you could also do a qualified. No, you could say, well, no, I can't do the meeting at the time you have scheduled. Um, but, um, I'm available at you know these times. Go ahead, check my calendar and pick something out. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and, and also, you know, finding, you know, taking a thing, taking steps back too, as far as like, what are the things that people are trying to do? It's, you know, as far as like, oh, we need to do blah. And and sometimes, well, maybe that, you know, maybe they want to um, have a conversation with a customer, but the thing that the person is asking for prob- maybe isn't appropriate um, or, or isn't the best use of, of you know, what they want to hear. So mm-hmm. maybe being able to craft it into, well, your end result is to develop a better relationship with the customer. Well, what if we did it this way? Or what if, mm-hmm. you know, how about I empower um, the solution architect for that account with, with this knowledge? And that'll, you know, help tighten, you know, build up that person's uh, technical skill set and also their, their direct relationship with the customer. So it's, it's not a way of, you know, just punning and, and running away, but, um, coming up with uh, uh, so- something that is equitable for everybody and tries to make everybody happy. I right. Guess. It's a it's a it's a pivot. Right. It's a jujitsu. Right. So taking something that is that is maybe not as productive or maybe not a good use of people's time, but making a few tweaks at the margins, asking the right questions, and turning it into and actually turning it into a meeting that might be useful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Which is what they want. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, so that sounds so good, especially when you say it. And then what I find myself doing, and here I'm going to take responsibility, and I'm sure I'm going to get no end of crap from the people we work with when I say this, but I find myself taking that principle, and in practice, I find myself getting super passive-aggressive, <laughs> like, like um, asking, continuing to ask questions, basically just to throw caltrops on the road, 
you know, like mm. just to, just to put barriers in the way to kind of, uh, you know, whatever, slow down the process. Or, um, I feel kind of in my gut that I want to say no so strongly that I find myself asking just really superfluous questions or just like nonsense questions, um, just to discourage the person, uh, from, uh, from asking. Right. Um, do you, do you, I can't, you don't feel you're a saint. You don't feel this way. right? <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to add latency, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes that's a really nice, that's a really nice way of putting it actually. I'll t- okay. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not being passive aggressive. I'm just adding latency to the system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, it, but you know, sometimes people use email as an instant messenger and yeah. a lot of times right. they try to solve things through email where it's like, no, let's get on the phone. And a lot of mm-hmm. times it's like, um, instead of throw, you know, so you can add latency, um, you know, like uh, the thing I try not to do is solve problems on a Friday night because they will, you know, depending upon who you're solving the problem with, you could mm-hmm. end up solving it on Saturday and Sunday as well and mm-hmm. back on Monday morning. So sometimes letting that sit until Monday and, and the, the thing I think about too, is it whether I solve it Friday night or Monday morning, the result is probably going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still going to, but I'm going to spend a lot more time if I solve it Friday night. So on Friday night, I'll try to solve the problems that, you know, that, that are a better, you know, a, a better use of my time at that particular point in time. Um, I know what's now what makes those different? What makes Friday night different than Monday morning for you or for them? Oh, you mean so like like a lot uh, so whether it's all Friday night or Monday morning? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's part of the expectations. Like you'll you'll have a lot of people that are on twenty four seven, and you know, and it's it's a matter of of um, you know, it's and and really it's like oh well for maybe it's a customer issue or something like that where mm-hmm. you know that the 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 person in engineering that you need to talk to isn't going to be around until Monday morning. Um, so for, you know, you, I could spend a lot of time working on the problem and trying to solve it myself. Um, and, and so I, I could spend eight hours doing that myself over the weekend, or I could have a call at 8am for like five minutes with the engineer and he'll say, Oh, it's here and, Mm -hmm. and be done with it. So I think when you do things is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing too, I found is that some t- transparency is good, but sometimes too much transparency isn't good. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people will say that, oh, I saw in your calendar that uh, you weren't scheduled to travel anywhere next week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it, you, that's never happened to you. Um, <laughs> and and so that's the other part, too, of, of um, just because, um, y- you know, you're not traveling somewhere. It doesn't mean that you're just like laying around with nothing to do. You know, mm-hmm. you may have had plans uh, for things that you haven't scheduled. And, and so in, in many cases I will actually schedule stuff on my calendar as blackout days to, Oh, I got to finish writing this paper or whatever, where I know I have a hard deadline. I'll actually, you know, put myself in isolation and schedule that block that time out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I also look at time as sort of a, a zero sum game. Um, like when I was in grad school, um, one of the guys that I worked with there, a uh, very wise uh, person, uh, he said that uh, there, there are two things in the world that um, you can never get back, and that is time and family. Um, you can always make more money. Um, you, know, you can always have a new friend. 
mm-hmm. but you know you're never going to get your mom or dad back or mm-hmm. or relatives or you're never going to get your time back so you know so I'm, and I look at it too is it with time being uh, a zero sum game um if you say yes to someone that does mean that you're saying no to someone else and that mm-hmm. no could be you Mm-hmm. So you're you're denying yourself, you know, uh, I'm denying time, you know, programming with Lauren on Friday night because I'm chasing down something that I could solve in 15 minutes on uh, Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so I, I think that – and the other thing too is that, I, I, you know, I'm always worried about saying yes too often. And, I, and I'm probably pretty much like you where, like, I, I think it's our nature that we want to please people and we're trying to make as many people – happy as possible mm-hmm. and sometimes by saying yes to people is the the quick way to make people happy but at the end of the day if you say yes too much um you're going to end up being oversubscribed and then do a poor job and then disappointing everybody yeah. um, because you you can't do a um do th- you know a lot of things well um so i think that's that's the other thing too mm-hmm. i think uh, i like it and I like it. You touched on this a little bit, but I like it. It actually works in both directions too, right? Because when you ask someone for an hour, we've talked about this before. When you ask someone for an hour long meeting, that is actually an incredible commitment of time on their part, right? Um, that's an hour they're not spending with their kids, right? Um, that's, that's an hour they're not spending uh, doing uh, something that they think is important, right? That's an hour that they're giving you because they value your judgment and they're trusting you with that hour of their life, that hour that they'll never get back. Um, and so I think being thankful and gracious and also respecting the time by you know, doing things like creating agendas, right? Setting, setting a goal for the meeting, putting fences around the meeting so that, um, you know, it's going to start at one time and end at another time. And we're going to, you know, keep to a particular scope. Um, uh, I think that's, it, it's all kind of wrapped together, right? Um, it has to do with, uh, respect, right. Mm-hmm. In one sense and respect, not just for other people, but also for yourself and for your own time. Um, oh, and that's, well, even, even respect for time, I'm always going out of my way to trim CC lists on mm-hmm, email threads, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's like, I'll move people to the BCC to let them know that I'm, um dropping them off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had a person come back to me mad. <laughs> right, right. Why'd you take me off that thread? I really wanted to know about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, we'll bring them in if they need to. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, you, you get these people that you know, they carbon copy the entire management chain up to, you know, up to mm-hmm. the VP level. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, you know, and so whenever that I, I'm always mindful of that. So whenever I need to reach out to somebody that does have limited time and it, and their attention is always being competed for, I try to be very mindful of their time and, um, very respectful in terms of, of, or, or at least succinct mm-hmm. of like, I'll I'll start off with like a yes no answer, mm-hmm. um, so they could just hit reply and say yes or no, and then if they want to read all the details down below, yeah, they're welcome to do that or make it like a multiple choice sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and then that way it makes it again it makes it harder for somebody to say no if you do a little bit of time up front to, um, you know, make it a, a, a value to them or something that they could turn around quickly. And I know I appreciate it so much when people uh, give me a. Uh, say like an executive brief on something or uh you know 
carefully describe the goals of a particular meeting or carefully describe how the time is going to be spent. Um, I really appreciate that. And I'm actually more likely to, to get involved, right? Because they've, they've mm-hmm. treated my time. They've treated my time wisely. Um, talking about emails, uh, you reminded me of uh, something that our, our uh, friend of the show, Dan Reisacker, um, he is, uh, I think this is a little bit banana noodles, but he, um, he uses, he subscribes to this five sentences rule. Mm. Uh, right. where, where if uh, in, if you cannot fit the content of the email in five sentences, it's a phone call. Yes, um, and that's and I think to a certain degree that's uh, you're kind of pushing rope uphill unless you know you're you're culturally disposed to something like that. Um, but I do like the idea that because uh, every email that you get, you know, <laughs> I forget who said it, but it was genius. Um, your your email inbox is a collaborative task list that anyone can add to. Um, yes. And so, and so I like the idea of, of someone exercise, exercising a little bit of self-control and saying like, well, you know, sending someone this 3000 word, I may have 3000 words to say about this, uh, but maybe sending the, sending this person a 3000 word email is maybe not the best use of my or their time. Um, so let yes. me do, let me do five sentences. And in those five sentences, I'll try and arrange a call. Right? Yep. And yeah. it doesn't have to be an hour long call. It that's could right. be a half hour call or a 15 minute call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. the thing too, is it, I don't, and, and I'm sure we're going all over the place here. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, uh, and, and maybe, uh, it, you know, sort of my rule is that if it's like, if it turns into, I don't know how many exchanges it needs to be like three or four, um, you mm-hmm. just pick the phone up. Yeah. Um, it, it's just crazy. Yep. You yep. know, yep. we had a, we had a, maybe we had a, had a productivity segment to the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there was, um, and I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes of, of, uh, there was this one professor that, um, sent out, he's working on some research thing. So he sent out to all these creative people to, I, I forget, review his work or something like that. And what happened was he basically got a bazillion rejection letters back. Um, and, and so what was interesting then is he actually did a study on the rejection letters oh. of how creative people say no. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, ranging from, I don't have time to work on your research, you know, and, <laughs> and, and things like that. And, and it was, it was a really interesting read as far as how, how, uh, you know, uh, you know, people manage their time. Cause it, yeah. Oh, that's really, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm definitely gonna read that. Um, all right, Dave, we're, we're sneaking up on 90 minutes here. So, uh, we probably got to put a cap on this boy. <laughs> okay. So, sp- speaking of time and attention. Um, so Dave, uh, this has been a sprawling epic episode. Um, if folks want to hear more or maybe this, uh, way to their appetite for other, uh, episodes of the Dave and Gunner show, uh, where would they go to, uh, to, to sate that hunger? Yeah, they they need to go to dgshow.org. So D is in Dave, G is in Gunner, show.org. All right, great. Um, and if you guys have uh, suggestions or comments on this show, uh, please let us know in the uh, in the comments. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Or, or send us a 3,000-word email. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to put in place a 3,000-word minimum on, uh, on emails. Um, oh, and please uh, send us some multi-part tweets as well. Uh, we enjoy yeah. those. Yeah. And ask us to fly out to talk about it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All, All right, right, Dave. Uh, well, uh, enjoy your weekend, Dave. Yeah, you too. And thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. Thanks.